Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. This week, we'll talk to Eve Shalom, who lost her hearing after being struck by a car at just four years old. Also on the show today, a listener wants to know how to share her grief story and who to share it with. Do your nosy coworkers really need to know everything? And I talk about the mantra one day at a time. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches about the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so excited to have you here. First off, I just want to say a big, huge, awesome thank you to everyone who left a Facebook review for my 25th birthday. We did make it to 25 by my 25th, and actually, I got one extra review for a good luck. I am so thrilled, and you have absolutely made the beginning of my antique year wonderful and joyful. And it's so heartwarming to see the support that's out there for the message that this podcast sends. You are all so amazing and so thoughtful. So just just thank you so much for submitting your review. This week for the top of the show, I want to talk about the concept and the mantra, one day at a time. This is a, a coping phrase that gets tossed around a lot and has actually been coming up a lot for me recently. I've been reading stories lately from people who are in the first days and the first weeks of their grief and just wondering, how do I get through it? How do I make it to this idea called the future when I'm already overwhelmed by everything happening today? How do I get unstuck from the past? People are throwing resources at me, but I can't seem to handle it all. There's a lot of there's a lot of crazy things happening in my life and in the world that seem overwhelming. And the advice from others has been and continues to be, take it one day at a time. Does it really work? Ah. <laughs> um, so I posted in my private Facebook group about this mantra and one person said, I break it down a little further. I concentrate on putting one foot in front of the other, completing one task at a time, Another grief group that I post in pretty regularly said more like minute by minute, but every minute counts. And two other people agreed with that. Uh, another woman talked about focusing on work with repetitive motions like painting that actually help her make it through another day. And she used the word grounded. So this idea of one day at a time, and especially for grievers, one minute at a time or one moment at a time seems to resonate with us. And I was curious about what it is about this one day at a time mantra that helps us. What is it about focusing on one minute or one moment and putting our whole focus there and nowhere else? What is it about grief giving us so little energy that literally today and right now is all we have the strength to think about? In my own life, I remember my mom saying one day at a time before she died. She said it sometimes before she was diagnosed, but she leaned on it a lot through chemo and through her relapse and and super mega big time when hospice was finally called in. 
one day at a time. It used to, it used to just annoy the crap out of me because I didn't want to focus on the day. I wanted to know what, what my life and her life was going to be like beyond it, beyond that day. And I wanted to know why things couldn't go back to the way that they used to be. I was concerned about the future and our family's future. And I was also like annoyed that the past didn't exist anymore. So sometimes I hate the phrase one day at a time because I don't, I don't want one day. I want more than that. As humans, we want certainty. We want stability. We want to know. Among many other things, grief to us is a teacher. And this whole irritating, awesome, radical mindset of one day at a time, it, it really drives home that what we have to hold on to, what we can truly, what we can truly affect and change and what we can do for ourselves and for others exists only in this immediate moment. The phrase one day at a time, one moment at a time, one minute at a time, it holds a lot of truth for us. And grief is really hard because it's so easy to just launch into the future, which is full of worry and uncertainty and anger for all these missed opportunities by loved ones. But it's also really easy with grief to drive straight back into the past with regrets and with rage and with nostalgia and pain. And grief is just an experience that is so, so full of pain. But when we're talking about coping with pain, we're often met with just take it one day at a time. And it drives you crazy, doesn't it? Until until you actually do it, until you're actually in it, taking one day at a time, you actually live it and learn it and recognize that, yeah, yeah, the the present is where it all happens. It's, it's the only place where you can live outside of your head. Grief still exists. Don't get me wrong. Grief still exists when you're taking it one day at a time, but it exists, it exists kind of with you, kind of alongside you. It's not this, this imaginary snowball heap of future worries. And it's not this past pile of, of, I wish things had been different or better or more. Your grief is just all here in this moment with you. And it is, it is full of ugliness and unknowns and disarray and disorganization but that's okay. It is. It, it really is. I'm here to tell you today that having your grief with you in this moment and just taking it one day at a time, it is okay. It's okay to be sitting in the present moment with a heap of unknowns. And maybe this week I'm saying this for me and for you. The reason one day at a time is so frustrating to us sometimes is because it's not how we're used to living. We're used to being caught up in everything going on around us and inside us and ahead of us and behind us. So to sit right here and be present, to only worry about and try to control today, that can feel weird. That can feel like lazy or unproductive or, or a lot of times like we should be doing more or knowing more about the future, about the past, about just details but here's the thing, grief, loss, death, 
divorce diagnosis are a heavy-duty reminder to us that the present moment is all we have. Talk to anybody who has experienced grief, and they have this perspective of continually returning back to the present moment because that's where that's where we live. That's what we have control over. The present moment is where we can humanly function. The present moment is where we can be sad or productive or tired or hopeless and yeah, even grateful if we want to be, but, but this is where it all happens. Our power is ultimately here. Like here, right now, as you're listening to this podcast. I guess what I want to say this morning and with the top of the show this week is that, is that if you're struggling to make it through your days, if you were in the first weeks and the first months of your loss, I want you to know that your life your days, your minutes, your moments are full of power. You are full of power. Taking it one day at a time isn't weak or small-minded or short-sighted of you. It's the only way that we can realistically function in the world. Our sense of normal, living five steps ahead and looking 10 years back all the time, is exhausting and really only serves to fill our head with worry. And when we're grieving in the immediate aftermath of our losses, we need that brain power. We need those resources. We need, we need that mental capacity and that mental space. And that, that right there is where grief becomes our teacher. Slow down. Come here, it says. Because here is truly all you have influence over. Here is the most important place that you could possibly be today. And that is very, very powerful. I want to know how you feel about the phrase one day at a time. I would love it if you joined my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, and commented on the post there to continue the conversation about one day at a time. Or you can always, always touch base with me at Shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. How do you take things one day at a time? Up next, I'll answer a listener question about who to tell your lost story to if you decide to tell them at all. Hi, Shelby. I'm a 30-something woman from the Midwest. My name is not important. What is important is that I'm being hassled into talking about what happened to me. About a month ago, I lost my dad to suicide. Two weeks later, his mom, my grandmother, had a heart attack and died. I am torn up inside and grieving for my whole family. My boyfriend seems to be the only safe place I can go with my emotions and my pain. Most nights he'll just hold me on our couch and I'll cry and cry about the fact that my dad and my grandmother aren't in my life anymore. What was a whole family just a month ago has been shattered into pieces. My dad and I had a fairly good relationship, but losing his job two years ago seemed to unlock some underlying mental and emotional issues that he didn't deal with that led to his suicide. My mom, my brothers, and I all agree that my grandmother died of a broken heart. I work in a small office of about 15 people. Because I took two bereavement leaves, people are starting to ask me what happened. They know the basics, but it's still really fresh and really raw for me, and I don't know how to start talking about my dad or my grandmother without crying or exposing everything that's going on behind the scenes. I don't think I'm ready for that. 
but people are curious and keep pressing and I feel like some of them genuinely want to know more so they can help me. I have family on my mom's side and my dad's side who are pressing for more information too. Am I obligated to give it to them? How do I know how much of my loss to talk about if I'm not ready to talk about it myself? It's getting harder and harder to go to work and go to the grocery store and go to my mom's house without knowing what to say. Thanks. Broken. Hi, Broken. First off, let me say I am so sorry for everything you're going through right now. Your dad's suicide and your grandmother's death just two weeks apart and then being hounded by your coworkers every time you go into work, you are in the thick of it. And being in the thick of it is usually not fun, to say the least. I want to read you a piece that I wrote this week about crafting and sharing your grief story. It was actually inspired by the conversation I had last week with Christina Lurchin. It's about the shared impact that sharing our grief stories can have, but it's also about guarding your heart and choosing your audience wisely. It's a three-step process. And for all the grief growers listening today, if you'd like to read it again, you can find it over on my blog at shelbyforsathea.com. So here's the piece. Last week on Coming Back, I spoke to Christina Lurchin about her grief story, the loss of her best friend to terminal breast cancer, and the loss of her daughter at 20 weeks. Her friend's diagnosis and her daughter's death were literally back-to-back, and she learned how to come back from what she refers to as the tornado that was her life. In our conversation, we talked about how important it is to share our stories of loss with others. Not only does storytelling relieve us of the burden of carrying our pain alone, but it can help us grow more comfortable in talking about our pain in public. In sharing our pain stories with others, we do the small, meaningful, everyday work of breaking down taboos surrounding grief, and through our vulnerability, we remind others of our humanness. Simply put, there is value for you and value beyond you in sharing your story of pain, loss, or heartache. It's a big reason of why I put my story out there for everyone to see. So how do we go about sharing our grief stories with others? What do we say? How do we say it? Who do we say it to? The first step is to decide on your grief story. This seems like a no-brainer, but in order to tell a story, you have to decide what it is. This step is very basic, but very important. Beginning, middle, and end. Where did it start? What happened in the middle? Where are you now? This can be as simple as, I was 21 when my mom died, or as detailed as I was in college when my mom died from breast cancer. It followed my dad having two major brain surgeries, so it was really scary and really heartbreaking for me. I still have hard days and worry when one of my family members calls. The best part about being the storyteller and your own story broken is deciding what events and backstory and details do you want to include. In this step, it's really important, and I'm thinking only of you when I say this. Ask yourself, what am I ready to share. The second step in this process is to decide who you want to share it with. For this part of crafting your grief story, you want to break your recipients down into two categories, people who need to know and people you want to tell. These are very distinct groups. So people who need to know are in close contact with you. Their lives will be affected in some way by your loss. This could be your boss, your coworkers, your doctor or therapist, your bank teller, your child care provider, lawyer, etc. 
These people, whoever they are, will need to know at least a little bit of what's going on in your life in order to better serve you or accommodate you as you work through it. This need to know, quote unquote, grief story can be more logical or contain less detail or be very short, etc. The people you want to tell are the trusted friends and family members that you actually walk through your loss with. And broken, this sounds like your boyfriend. These people will get the emotional side of your loss and can help you shoulder some of the pain and the uncertainty and the heartache that you're feeling. These are the people who would sign up to help you if you were in a crisis. And this is a good time to ask yourself, who most supports you? Whose eyes do you want on your heart? Whose hands would you like to catch you when you fall? This is your want to tell group. These folks can handle and sometimes even invite gory details, tear-filled text novels, and long, deep conversations about your loss. They have your heart and they have your back. Disclaimer, this is the part where I tell you you are allowed to have two or more different versions of your grief story. You do not have to disclose the same information to anyone for any reason. Yes, broken, even if they ask you to. Double disclaimer, on top of all this, know that your family can be the recipient of a need-to-know story, and your beloved nanny, male person, professor, whoever, can be the recipient of a want-to-tell story. You do not have to keep people at an arm's length because you have a professional financial relationship with them, but conversely, you don't have to share nitty-gritty details with Aunt Marge just because she's family. So for the last part of this step, you always want to ask yourself, who needs to know that something has happened? And who do I want to tell that something has happened? Sort people into those groups. The last step in this process, step three broken, is to be prepared to actually hold a conversation. So once you decide on your grief story and decide who you want to tell and in what way, it's time to actually tell your story. But wait, this is not a one-way telephone. This is a conversation with another human being. You're going to talk, tell them your grief story, and they're going to say something and you're going to have to say something back. This is a wonderful time to have some canned or some prepped responses to even try and anticipate what the other person is going to say. If the person says, wow, I am so sorry, that seems so hard. Maybe you say something like, thank you for saying that. It was really hard, and I've had to make a lot of adjustments since then. If the person says, well, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason, Maybe you say, that might be true for you, but I'm still working it out for myself. If the person says, my cousin's wife, mother, brother, whoever, experienced the same thing and they learned XYZ from their doctor, have you guys tried that? Did you guys learn that? Maybe you say, thanks for your suggestion, but we're working it out for ourselves right now. In this step, the key is to ask yourself, what's the absolute worst thing that somebody could say to me? What will people probably say to me? And what would I expect somebody who really loved me to say to me? And you should prepare short, clear responses for addressing each of those answers. And this is not to create more homework for you, but having these follow-up responses in your back pocket can remove a lot of the anxiety that comes with sharing your lost story with another person. Through all of these steps and in your conversations beyond them, I want to remind you that bravery and vulnerability and resilience come to us with practice, not time. Grief is hard already, so talking about it can be awkward and difficult and uncomfortable. There will be a lot of moments when you wish you hadn't shared your story, 
with your coworkers or your family or whoever, there will be responses that you don't have canned answers for. And there will be people who don't know how to react appropriately to your pain, to what you're going through. But what I will tell you is that the process of sharing your story helps you grow. It gets you to shed a light on your grief and what you're going through and asks you to really get intentional with how your story has influenced you and is continuing to influence you and your life. When you're the storyteller, you get to decide what story gets told. And after a big, crippling, life-ruining loss, that power, we're on the power train today, is an exquisite gift. So the thing I want to give you here with this article is a loving and a strong reminder that you are 100% in control of what information you want to share. You're not in control of how people respond and you're not in control of the fact that people keep hounding you for more information, but you are in control of how you respond. You are under no obligation to let people deep into your life or your family's lives. Tell the people who need to know what they need to know. And then work through your story yourself as much as you feel you need to before sharing more. This is probably best done with with a counselor or a therapist or a grief recovery specialist. It sounds like you've been opening up to your boyfriend broken, which is a start, but I challenge you as time goes on and as you continue to look at your grief and look at what happened, that you find one or two more people that you feel safe sharing your story with. This is very scary and can be hard at first, but but their responses to your grief story and your gut feeling while you're telling them will let you know if they're a safe person to continue talking to about your loss. If your coworkers don't feel safe, know that there are people out there in the world who are safe spaces or know how to create those safe spaces for your grief story. Again, I am so sorry for the loss of your dad and the loss of your grandmother. It sounds like you love them a lot. I am sending so so much love your way. My heart is with you. Again, if you want to reread this post on sharing your grief story, check out my blog at shelbyforsythia.com. And as always, you can ask your own question to be featured on the show by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043, or you can always email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And both of these contacts are always in the show notes. Next up, we'll talk to Eve Shalom about losing her hearing at age four and how that has totally changed her life. Eve Shalom is an ice skating coach and performer, a yoga instructor and a dance movement therapist. She's also a modern dancer and teaches creative movement and modern dance. Eve was hit by a car at the age of four and suffered hearing loss in both ears and a traumatic brain injury. The process of recovery was pretty quick superficially, and Eve found different ways to compensate for her injuries. But a deeper process of recovery began with her degree in dance movement therapy and has continued to the present, where she works on her relationship to the world around her and pays attention to her use of the senses and all her sense impressions and feelings. I want to start off by telling everybody your loss story because I understand it is a little bit unique. I My loss story is basically about losing my hearing. It happened when I was four years old that I was in a car accident on the back of a bicycle as a babysitter was riding a bicycle across the street. We were hit by a car and I hit my head on the windshield of the car 
And then I, I don't really remember what happened, but I went to the hospital and and then I did not have my hearing at all for about six months. And then I went on a plane ride and it came back to about 50% in each ear. Um, and it's roughly about 50% in each ear now. So I think and the, the loss of something that there was that six months where I didn't have any hearing and it was also very traumatic for me because I didn't know what had happened. I didn't really understand anything. I couldn't hear my family. So that was a very difficult time and I feel like I lost a lot of things in that time, not just my hearing. When the hearing came back partially, I just continued to live as a person with hearing loss and uh, being hard of hearing and kind of, uh, you know, coping with that throughout my whole life. I want to know how much of that six months do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I I really probably don't remember any of that six months. Um, there were some feelings that have come back uh, about that time period as I've worked through layers of PTSD that I got from that. I think it's, it's a lot of that wanting to connect really badly and having difficulty connecting. And then also some... Of like feeling like not it's really it's a very subtle sense the way our hearing works but you notice people approaching because you hear them coming and mm-hmm. I had never I didn't hear people coming so I was often like startled or shocked when somebody would would all of a sudden be there um, and I wouldn't hear them leave and I didn't hear them come and so there's this sort of uh, that actually seems to have had more of an impact on my life than I expected. Um, just like all the little ways in which our hearing loss or our hearing um, work just to keep us safe and feel connected in our lives. So tell me more about your feelings regarding this accident, regarding the babysitter, regarding your family's reaction, your friend's reaction to to all of this happening in your life. what did what did kind of the immediate aftermath look like for you? Well, I think I was at home a lot. There was this device that, my mom, like, the, there was a device that I wore around my body that was a box, and I did have some some um, headphones, and I could hear a little bit if my mom spoke into a microphone. But I, So I think that she was using that. So I, I could hear, like, one person at a time with the microphone, but it was not clear, not very clear at all. I think for my for my family, it was extremely difficult to handle. I know that my mom really suffered under the the shock of it and the weight of it, and she didn't know how to help me. And my dad had a sort of, he was kind of in denial of the event because he couldn't believe what happened and he was so upset about it. So he he didn't really acknowledge that I had a hearing loss for a long wow. time. <laughs> so, that's, that's drastically different for both parents. Your, your mom yeah, seemed to yeah. have been trying to do everything she possibly could and still not knowing how. And your dad was like, this isn't happening. This is not this yeah. is not what my life looks like. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. And I just had, I had one brother at home and I know that my brother did not get a lot of attention during this time period because it all went on me. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like it depends on when things like this happen in a family. It depends on how strong your family is or whether things like this can bring the family closer together. And it's very strange for me because I, it, it did not work well in my house, and it, and it uh, served to make me more separated from everyone else in the house, and my family didn't know how to accommodate the deafness, and they, somehow they didn't receive the, the aid or tools that they needed 
in order to know how to, to handle it better. I was often like kind of an outsider in the house. But in a way, it's been really strange because as I've gone through a process in the last like eight years or so where I've realized what a huge impact this early event had in my life, which I was unaware of before, I feel that the fact that I had a little bit of that outsider feeling in my household allowed me to sort of move and grow beyond the connections of my family. And then being able to come back to my family and bring new a new way of connecting and communicating back to them and sort of help them like move uh, into a healthier direction. It's been very exciting. So, so I almost feel like it's been an opportunity. The whole thing was an opportunity. I think that I'm living a very different life now than even would have been possible had I grown up in my household uh, without having an accident like that. I feel like I have a potential for more because of what was provided by having to, to take a leap over something that was so big. Do you ever hold any resentment or anger for the babysitter who was watching over you or anybody else who was involved or caused the accident? Does that ever come up for you? It did in the past. Um, I don't think, I don't feel like it so anymore. And for the babysitter, I didn't really, I never really felt angry at her. She was a teenage girl and she didn't, she didn't mean that. And she, you know, she didn't, maybe she didn't, had, was given too much responsibility. And then that, that sort of falls onto my parents um, for giving her the responsibility of taking me out on the bike. My parents have more than, more than enough express their guilt feelings or their, um, you know, wishes that things had been different. And, and I don't, I don't feel like there's anything left where I'm upset at them for it. What did inspire your growth process? And was there ever like a lightning bolt moment for you where it's like, okay, this is what my life looks like now. And I'm going to have to deal with it. However, X, Y, Z. There definitely was. Yeah. There were, there were a few ripples. Like when I was in my mid-20s, I started doing some meditation and going to a Buddhist monastery. And one of the um, monks there had a hearing loss where she had one ear. She was deaf in one ear. And she did these movement retreats. And I'm also a dancer. And I was really enjoying doing these movement retreats at the monastery. And I realized that my hearing loss had affected my personality. And Mm. I realized that I had a lack of confidence because of it. And that, that was a huge awakening for me that I had no, because I had ignored any impact that the hearing loss might have on me as a person or, um, you know, taken it into consideration and how I dealt with people. I just struggled blindly without ever trying to, um, you know, make an allowance for myself because of it. And so that was the first time when I started to realize that there was something that I needed to recover from or that I needed to, to take stock of. So I was doing it in a small way, but then I got married and it turned out very poorly and got divorced pretty quickly afterwards. And that was the beginning of my major growth process where I had to figure out why I was having such bad relationships and the hearing loss and my feelings about myself because of the hearing loss were huge things that I had to work through. Because it wasn't fair the way I was seeing myself and feeling about myself because of a disability that I got that wasn't my fault. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what 
what was going through your head or what were the beliefs that came up for you that either weren't true or things that you discovered were true? One of the big things when you have a hearing loss is that people, most of the time, they don't know that you have a hearing loss because it's not very visible. Hearing aids are not Mm -hmm. very obvious most of the time. So people will not know that you didn't hear them and they just assume that you're slow or that you, um, you're stupid, that you can't, like, that you don't, that they have to talk down to you to try to explain what they're saying. And then it's just, it's very subtle and it happens very fast because, because people just jump to that conclusion right away. So being able to have the confidence to say right up front, I have a hearing loss, can you repeat that? So that the person knows that I'm not, it's not that I'm slow or that I, that I wouldn't understand them if I heard them, you know, so then they don't have to try to rephrase it in a simpler way for me. So that's like one of the biggest things is that dealing with feelings of like being inferior or um, slow or stupid and starting to, one of the problems was, is that when I was a kid, I didn't realize what was happening. I just knew that people talked to me like I was stupid all the time. So then I started, they felt like I was stupid. And that was one of the beliefs I held about myself because that's how other people treated me because they didn't realize how they didn't hear them. Oh my gosh, that absolutely breaks my heart. And I, it sounds like you found a new voice for yourself in this. Tell me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked on it a lot because I, and sometimes I still find that I'm a little bit shy to say something, but most of the time I'm generally able to say something right away. And The other huge improvement is that technology has improved so much over the years that I can't, from when I, when I was 16, it went from analog to semi-digital. When I was 21, it went from semi-digital to digital. And then since then, there have continued to be improvements every few years in terms of how many frequencies the hearing aid picks up, the clarity of the sound. Most of the time, I can turn my hearing up, hearing aid up a few notches and then I'm good. Like I can, I can pretty much hear what people are saying. You know, if there's a lot of accents or they're talking fast, it is difficult for me. And sometimes I have more trouble hearing kids because they don't speak as clearly as adults do mm-hmm. um, most of the time uh, or sometimes. But it's, in general, I'm able to hear a conversation so much better than I did when I was younger. So that makes a big difference, too, because I, I feel more comfortable to be proactive you know, because, because I can take steps, I can, you know, move closer, or I can turn the hearing aid up. And then if I'm having trouble, I can say something. Um, whereas when I was younger, there were just, there was so much of the sentence that I would miss. And so and all of like, like three quarters of the sentence or two thirds of the sentence, I would miss all the time. So in that case, it becomes communication really becomes a much more focused activity where somebody would have to really face me and speak extremely clearly for me to be able to hear all the sentence, the whole sentence. And my family and the way I grew up, I grew up in a society and in a a culture where I was in a regular school. I was in, you know, I didn't grow up in a signing community and I probably would have had an easier time had I grown up in a community with sign language. So but I, I just was one of those people who read lips a lot and managed to get by. Wow. So you didn't have any other than having the technology of a hearing aid. You had no accommodation. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Holy crap. Lip reading and, you know, and, um, and then sometimes in school, somebody might help me with the notes or the, if I had questions, I did a lot of reading 
to help myself keep up in school. So I would I would read a lot about the subjects that I was in to like get the information other than just in the classroom. Talk to me more about the movement element that spoke to you because when I when I found out we were going to be doing an interview and your loss was loss of hearing, I instantly jumped to loss of balance, but that's vertigo and I think that's different, correct? Well, no, actually you have a very good point because my balance is impaired. Um, my vestibular system is impaired. That's the inner ear system mm-hmm. that has to do with the with the cilia, which are the hairs that, that are responding to the fluid in your ears. And it's because I have nerve damage in my ears, those cilia are impaired. So I, I do have a, a weaker vestibular system. But I will say that it's actually stronger now than it's ever been. And it might be might be average or a little bit above average because I've worked so hard to repair the vestibular system. And I've been very lucky in my life that I was so kinesthetically gifted and, and very sensitive, physically very sensitive uh, to body language and emotions and nonverbal communication. And so that was one way in which I was making up for my hearing loss. And I lived an extremely physical life uh, as a nice skater, a modern dancer and a dance movement therapist and a yoga teacher and an ice skating teacher and performer. So I've, you know, done a lot of movement uh, as a way to channel my energy because movement, like, cause then there's not quite as much talking and communication because you can see what people are doing and then you know what to work on. I'm curious now about the second loss in your life, this divorce and how, how it tied back to, your hearing loss and what new things it it kind of unearthed in you, but also maybe what new things you learned altogether. Oh, I really appreciate that question because what the divorce did was the divorce kind of woke me up because I thought that I was making a great decision and I thought that I had figured out relationships. It was basically a loss of the person that I was because the person that got married or decided to do that had was a different version of me. I, you know, I, I feel like I've gone through maybe thousands of versions since then. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, so every mm-hmm. single time it's like a loss, you know, and I, I've had many times when I felt like I had to mourn myself because I, I died again and had to be reborn again. And I'm like, how many times does this have to happen? <laughs> <laughs> how many times before I'm just born and it's fine? Right, 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 right. Tell me more about your perspective on death of self and mourning versions of our previous selves. I think it's one of those attachment things, you know, like you get attached to who you think you are and, and, and who you're used to identifying yourself as. And then, and then when you want to grow and change and you let go of that, and then there's this trust that there's still something there that is you and will always be you. But it's like, but this trusting that there's something there that will be there and that you could really let go of a lot of other stuff so that you have a chance to continue changing and growing and like continue becoming more at one with your environment and with the world around you and with other people. And, and, um, and it's kind of, it is freeing once you get there where you don't feel the need to hold on to who you are anymore. It feels like I can be bigger when I don't need to identify myself anymore. I want to know now, aside from age, what is different about you now and the little girl who lost her hearing? That's a good question. That makes me kind of emotional. (laughs) 
Well, I would say that one of the biggest things is to not holding on anymore. Because after the accident, I clung very tightly to people and to my mom because I was so terrified. Yeah. And, um, and I needed somebody to anchor me. I needed people to anchor me because I was, like, incredibly lost. And so to be able to feel like, like I've gotten to the point where I don't have to hold on to people that way, where they're free to be themselves or go in their own directions, and I'm free to go in my direction, and that I'm not lost, like, that I do feel like I'm with myself, I think that is the biggest difference. And I've just got this word of, or, or this phrase or this image of, you don't have to stay in order for me to stay. Yeah. And I just, I love how that feels for you, Eve. That feels really cool. Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for putting that phrase out there. I like that too. Oh my goodness, you don't have to stay for me to stay. That's some deep freaking power there. And that also has to do a lot with that death of self that keeps happening over and over and over again as we lose all these things that that we think that we're connected to. Um, I want to go in the direction of anyone who has lost a sense or anyone who feels like they've lost a really vital piece of themselves. What would you tell them? if you found out that that was their story today? Well, I mean, one thing that's amazing about the human brain is that it's plastic. I, I love the fact that I can make new connections at any age. I read this wonderful book called The Brain That Changes Itself, and I read other books about neuroplasticity, um, and I believe in it very strongly that, that when you lose one sense, the other senses can make up for it. So that, and they can, sometimes they can do an incredible job compensating for it. And you end up being a more sensitive person and a more connected person than you would have been had you not lost the sense. Mm-hmm. And also appreciating the other senses more because you, you realize, because you had to become conscious of it. So I would just say, I would say, you know, take full advantage of everything else you have. Enjoy everything else that you have. Because it can do a really awesome and creative job of making up for what you lost. I absolutely love that. So for anyone out there who feels like you've you've lost a sense, you've actually lost a sense, or you've lost a piece of your identity, your brain, your mind, your spirit will shift to accommodate that. You will shift to accommodate you. It fits so well with the idea of coming back because the loss is never the hard part. Life is really good at, at dealing us losses. It's all of the decisions that we make in the coming back process about how we live our lives and what we choose to believe in and who we decide to lean on for support that ultimately shape who we are today. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. (laughs) Rock on. So if anybody that's listening right now wanted to get in touch with you to share their stories, to take a class, how would they go about doing that? Well, I, um, I'm teaching uh, yoga at McFetridge Sports Center um, on California and Irving Park Road. And, uh, and then I'm also teaching a, a movement class at Oriole Park Library. Um, and then, uh, yeah, 
I guess the ice rink's a good place, and you can find me on Facebook. My name's um, Eve Shalom, C-H-A-L-O-M, and uh, my Facebook page is public, so that's an easy way for people to find me and message me if they want to speak with me. That's great. Eve, I am so thrilled to have had you on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It was such an honor to know not only your experience, but what you've learned since then. It really was an honor to to know that about you. So thanks for being on the show today. It was so great to have you here. Thank you. Um, I do also have a blog. If you put my name in, um, you'll find a blog where I've written some articles on that. Oh, lovely. So we'll share that as well. Very good to talk to you, Shelby. I'm really happy that we did this interview. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Eve Shalom, who came back by pursuing her natural gift for movement and using her divorce as a chance to become more introspective about her childhood hearing loss. If you or someone you love is living with a disability, be sure to check out Eve's recommended book from the show, The Brain That Changes Itself. You can get in touch with Eve on Facebook or by Googling Eve Shalom blog. Join me tomorrow, August 17th, on Facebook Live at 1 o'clock Chicago time. We'll be talking about perfecting our grief stories and deciding who we ultimately want to share them with. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back, because you never know what somebody you love is going through. As always, a much-deserved thank you to Mr. Eddie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my magnificent grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am so, so proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.